You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Robert Barnes. I'm not a pastor here, but I'm a pastor in the James River Presbytery, who is very pleased to be uh, preaching and bringing the word today. I'm really grateful to the pastors and staff who are here at City Church. They have, as long with the rest of the congregation, have have made a, a wonderful church home for for me and my family during uh, a, a rather up and down uh, couple of years. So, so grateful to be here today uh, with, and, and so uh, with the opportunity to preach the word. Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 6. It's from Isaiah chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 8. You can find that in your, in your Bible your app on your phone, or in the bulletin. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the, with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, illumine our hearts and our minds today that we may, through the power of your Spirit, understand your word in our minds, draw it in, to the deepest part of our being, and then live it out day to day. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we were praying for this worship service and for the congregation, uh, together with staff and, uh, and other folks who were singing and being a part of the service, we were all of our prayers were drawn to the reality of the the holiday season and that for many it's just 
one party after the other. And for others, it's sad and difficult and depressing. And it doesn't get better. And it's January 1st and you're already exhausted. And I want you to know that the elders, that the staff, they know that. They get that. They're praying, and we prayed for you today that your hearts would be encouraged. There's a time after the worship service where often someone will be standing up front to pray with you. If you're really hurting today, or if you just have something you need to share with someone that you need to be encouraged and prayed for by a Christian brother or sister, I encourage you to avail yourself of that. It's for you. It's for me that this church exists to encourage one another. What I hope to accomplish today in the scripture is I hope to reveal again and remind you of the holiness of God. And not only that, but that he is on the throne. And not only that, but from that posture and from that position, his mercy flows to you, to me, to those who are most in need of his mercy. And in hearing that, we may know that we have a mission this year and every day. A mission that is empowered and encouraged by the mercies of God. I'm going to do that through weaving together a few stories, one of my own and a couple from another couple of places in Scripture that will gather together some themes, and then we'll jump in and just exegete the verses. We'll go through the verses step by step and look at what's there and then do a couple of moments of application. First, a story. Uh, Part of... I was raised in Mississippi, okay? And it... Something like that changes you. You don't make it out of a place like Mississippi without being changed. Uh, There's all sorts of good things that go on there. There's all sorts of things that are bad things and worthy of all the ridicule that Mississippi gets. And this story starts in Mississippi, as many scary, life-changing stories do. So part of growing up in the rural south For me, this may not have been true for you, but part of growing up in the rural south for me was a lot of hunting and fishing, or as we called it, hunting and fishing. Now, as soon as I would get home from school, as quickly as I could finish whatever chores were going on, I was grabbing my twenty-two rifle, and I was heading out into the woods to hunt squirrels in the fall and in the winter. And I would make it my goal to kill a couple of squirrels. And I would bring them home and lovingly undress them and prepare them to be uh, cooked for breakfast, of all things. Before 7 a.m., I would have cooked those dear squirrels 
and made a milk gravy. And my mother would have made biscuits by that point. And I would have squirrel and gravy biscuits. Mmm, mmm. I can see you. Some of you are going to want my recipe after this sermon. And I won't give it away. It's a secret. But one evening, I was out hunting. I'd gotten home, grabbed my rifle, headed to the woods. Wasn't successful this evening. For some reason, squirrels were disappearing around my home. And I wasn't successful that evening. So I was coming back home. And in the distance, across uh, the field, probably a quarter mile away, there was a stand of pine trees. And the sun was setting behind the pine trees. And in just like it, in the... In the in the country the sun starts to set and as soon as it's set it's dark there are no lights anywhere but behind those pine trees the sun is setting and I hear the sound of a couple of squirrels there allow me to demonstrate you can see how effective I was so they were up there in the trees I could hear them I knew they were there and so I started creeping up on them, trying to pick out the silhouette. It was then that my life changed. I was about halfway across the field, kind of working my way around the edge, coming up on this stand of pine trees, when I heard the cry of a wild animal that this country boy had never heard before. It was like the cry of a woman if she were 50 feet tall and angry with me, it was like the cry of a woman and it was right on top of me. It was somewhere close to me and I couldn't see it. Involuntarily, my knees buckled. Without thinking through a plan for how this was going to work out, the next step was to fall down on my chest Again, over my useless weapon, I fall down on top of it. And I'm scanning, looking everywhere, trying to find out where this animal is that's going to eat me, that's going to kill me. But the only thing I heard was my own pounding heart, louder than I had ever heard in my life. I recovered. It took a few minutes. It literally took a few minutes. It was bad. I didn't go straight home because going straight home would have involved walking through a patch of woods, and the woods were a no-no at that point. So I circled back, went to the main road that connected to my grandparents' house, walked up that road, didn't feel entirely safe there, but nevertheless, it was my only option, and made it home. The journey to understanding God's holiness involves following another man into the woods. It was Moses. God led Moses out to Midian. In Midian, he was pasturing and shepherding his now father-in-law's flocks. And while he was out one day, Something happened to him in the wilderness that 
wasn't supposed to happen, that he had never seen before, that as an experienced shepherd, you would think he would have been able to see everything. But he sees something and hears something he's never heard before. He sees a burning bush, a burning tree, but it wasn't being consumed by the fire. And so he begins to walk closer and closer to it. And Exodus 3 says this, And when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, said Moses. Isaiah, as you remember, said these same words a thousand years or so later. Not a coincidence. And God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Now I want to ask some questions about this to prepare us for our text today. We're still gathering up provisions for the text. Why is the ground holy? What does that even mean? Why does it even get mentioned? The ground isn't holy because there's something dangerous about the ground as such but because God is manifesting his presence there, the supremely holy one, creation cannot help but take on some of God's power. God's messenger, Moses didn't know it yet, but he was going to be God's messenger. He needed to see this. He needed to experience this. But he couldn't get that close. He had to stand back and remove his shoes. It was a form of respect in the culture, but it was more than respect. A sinful man had made those sandals. Who knows what kind of leather they were made from? Who knows what he had walked through before he had gotten there? But a holy God had made Moses' feet. God made our bodies. They aren't dirty. And so... Moses in his bare feet could walk safely on holy ground because God made our bodies and they're good. Now, Moses may have averted his eyes at God's glory, but he needed to see that the God of his fathers could take the most basic elements of creation, like bushes and dirt, and make them conduits for his power and preachers of his message. Surely, based on that experience, Moses could logic that out and and realize that God could also use him, that God could also work through Moses and change him and make him holy and able to preach and teach and lead. Now, 800 years later, we're beginning to collect some ideas that will help us. 800 years later, Isaiah, God's messenger, he needed to see a holy God. He needed to have his senses overwhelmed by God's presence, by the songs of the angels, by the throne room of God. And like Moses, he needed to see that this holy God was willing, desirous, to share his purity with us. He was willing to share this ethical purity in the form of righteousness 
which is how we describe moral holiness. How would that even work, though? How can God transfer his moral holiness, his righteousness, to us? Well, in systematic theology and in some other parts of Scripture, there's a kind of a legal way of explaining how God does this. But there's an organic way of understanding it as well. And we see it illustrated in Moses' story and in another story from the life of Jesus. Cultures have different ways of understanding the transfer of properties from one object to another. In the West, we always view the negative property as winning in that transfer. So, so kids, if you drop your favorite uh, pair of gloves, because you need some gloves when it gets really cold here in Richmond, and you get some gloves that are really nice, maybe you got some for Christmas, and you drop those in the mud, you would say that your gloves got muddy, okay? Because the negative properties of mud got, got transferred to the, to the gloves and ruined them. But other cultures can view things like that differently. In some other cultures, they might even think that the, the, the mud gets glovey. Look at John 9 to see what I mean. I know that sounds ridiculous. Look at John 9 to see this in action for how, how it works itself out. In John 9, this is the story where Jesus is healing a blind man. And Jesus, of course, follows the normal uh, standard operating procedures by spitting on the ground and making mud pies and smearing it all over his eyes. You've done that, I'm sure, with your kids, right? They get something in their eye, they hurt something, you reach down, spit on the, some ground, make some mud, put it on there, rub it. Do you feel better now? Yeah, they feel a lot better, and the neighbors are calling uh, the police. Jesus heals the blind man by spitting on the ground and making mud pies. And Jesus' hands, however, didn't get mud all over them. The mud got Jesus all over it. So that when he applied the mud to this man's eyes and face, Jesus' own personal, incarnational, transformational power was rubbed into that man and healed him. Jesus' hands didn't get messed up from this activity. The mud was changed. The mud received the good properties from Christ so that that man wasn't covered in mud. He was covered in Christ. Now let's look at Isaiah 6. Look back at your, at your text, wherever it is. We're just going to walk through it now with these bits of story and truths to help us a bit. In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, stop right there. Uzziah, his, his, his whole ministry, his whole reign ended very, very poorly. He did okay for, for a number of years. But then he decided at a certain point that he wanted to begin to take on the role of a priest as well as a king. 
And so he went to the temple. And he went over to the altar that held incense. And he began to do the work of a priest around that altar. Well, Amaziah and a whole group of other priests confronted him and said, you can't do this. And he said, yes, I can. And God struck him with terminal leprosy. And so he was banished to a life of isolation from that point on, and the throne was empty, except for his son occasionally stepping in. So when King Uzziah died, the throne of Judah had been empty for years. And now, what does that little bit of backstory help us with? It helps a lot. Listen. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Now, in Isaiah's vision, the throne isn't empty. But God is on the throne. Even in the darkest times, when political leaders in this case, not that we would ever experience that, but in this case, when political leaders have messed everything up, making the country feel like it doesn't even have a real king in place. God is on the throne. When those in authority over you fail in their responsibilities, God is on the throne. When you had the worst Christmas ever, God is on the throne. In 2023, God will be on the throne. Now above him, looking back at the text, stood the seraphim. These are angels that form a great choir. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so these angels, they do what any sentient, sinless creature should do in the presence of God. They worship Him. They worship Him with loud song that tells the truth about God loud enough that anyone everywhere can hear it. And one day, everyone will hear it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I had a friend in Florida who was really good at winning tickets and other things that would be on the radio. And one of the things that he did is he would take me to see Trans-Siberian Orchestra during the Christmas season. Have you seen Trans-Siberian Orchestra before? You need a friend that wins tickets to things like this. I've been five or six times. It's great. It looks like this. What the scene that you're seeing played out here in Isaiah 6, it's like that. There are angels flying everywhere. They have electric guitars and drums and things like that. But nevertheless, it is a wild demonstration. Uh, And it's all about Christmas. 
They, they look like they're trying to duplicate this scene that Isaiah is experiencing. And it gets so loud, and there are flames and smoke that if you're on the front row right there, there are giant flame pots that go off, that go all the way up to the ceiling, and your face burns. And if it weren't supposed to be safe, you would not feel safe. You would feel scared at what was going on because there's fire and it's right there in front of you blasting out and you feel the heat from it. But in Isaiah 6, Osha was not involved at all. He's just there. Yeah, it's a dream, but you've been in dreams before. It doesn't matter that you're in a dream. Your heart's still beating. You're still crying. You're still experiencing it. And so as the thresholds shook and the house was filled with smoke, then the singers come out. Holy, holy, holy. It's a trifold structure used in Hebrew to demote the most elevated degree of its object. In this case, it's a reference to God's alien personage as creator that he's entirely distinct from us because in the same way that a creator is distinct from the creature. He's wholly other, but he's not entirely different from us due to him graciously sharing some of his attributes with us through the image of God that he has placed within us. It's not just about his being, this holy, holy, holy. It's also ethical. He's righteous, he's morally holy, and his actions, he just doesn't have perfect rules, but his actions that overflow from his character and his being are also perfect. So that he is an overflowing fountain of all holiness and all goodness. And this prepares us for Isaiah's falling on his knees experience Verse 5, because Isaiah then says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, just as the angels had given the only rational response of a sinless creature to God's presence, now Isaiah gives the only rational response of a sinful man to the manifest presence of the Almighty God. He panics. Even if this is a vision or a dream, he's a sinful man drenched in the systemic sins of his generation and with the noise and the fire and the mighty angels. It feels a lot more like Judgment Day than Sunday morning. He thinks he's going to die. And he thinks he would deserve it. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, I don't know how this all played out, but if I saw a giant angel coming toward me with a big thing of metal in their hands and the end of it is glowing I wouldn't have thought whoa this is great this is really gonna work out 
Isaiah is probably still in full panic mode. And then the angel gets close and he sees that it's fire on the end of the big piece of metal. And things have not improved at that point. And he doesn't even explain it before it all happens. He touches his lips. He touches his face with the hot metal. And with the big piece of charcoal that is impregnated with oil and various spices. He touches his face and then he explains the whole thing to him. Well, thanks. You could have switched that around. He touches his mouth and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In this single verse, in this snapshot from verses 6 and 7, it's, it's our hope. It's the hope for, for you and for me and for this generation and for Richmond and for our nation and for our world. It's hope that covers our past that addresses our present, that gives us hope for the future. God hears the cry of his servant Isaiah. I'm a sinner. How can you use me? And, and if I somehow manage to be good for just a few minutes, these people, they're going to drag me down in no time. How can you use me? And God responds to the cry of his servant, Isaiah. He hears him and responds to his need. And he says to Isaiah, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. He says the same message that will be preached from this table in just a few minutes. His need was to know that God had not brought him there to kill him or to shame him, but he had brought him there to this dangerous place to heal him. Now, it was the same kind of incense altar that King Uzziah had desecrated, by the way, and then was cursed because of it, now God's angel has reached out, taken a coal from that incense altar and put it right under Isaiah's nose, right up to his lips and pressed it against them. And we know from the verse 8 and from the rest of the book that this prepares Isaiah for his prophetic ministry. His ministry of the word that would pass his lips and his pen would go into the ears and eyes of his audience then and still does today. King Uzziah, who had meddled with the incense in the temple, was cursed with leprosy, sent into exile, silenced forever. But with Isaiah's interaction with God in his temple and the altar of incense. Isaiah walks away blessed, sent into ministry, made whole, and given a voice 
that still preaches today. This helps us see that God's holiness, which initially seems frightening and foreboding, is the means of our salvation. Through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, God draws us into His circle of holiness. He unites us with Himself. He draws us into His presence, assures us of His love and His mercy in the presence of His holiness. This wasn't new to Isaiah. The prophets had taught this to Isaiah before, during, and after. Hosea 11 is an interesting example of that. In Hosea 11.9 shows that God's holiness is the ground for His mercy to His people. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with wrath. That's not the holiness like some people talk about it. That makes holiness into something that makes His mercy flowing to us much more sure, much more certain. When Jesus is on the cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? He stops right before this. I can't help believe Jesus intended us to look up the psalm and go to verse 3. And see where Jesus stopped. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. Yet. Yet. You may feel abandoned. And forsaken. And that God has been far from the words of your groaning. I get that. A holy God has heard your cries, has counted your tears. And in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued and were not put to shame. And that same promise is unto you and your children. As the Holy One, God has for thousands and thousands of years delivered His people from death and destruction. So in the book of Revelation, it's not a surprise then that we find that God is holy and that there are angels and creatures singing everywhere, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and heaven and earth is filled with His glory. And in chapter 15, we see the culmination the, the fulfillment of Isaiah's hopes and dreams for his ministry. In chapter 15 of Revelation, the crowd sings together, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts, your holy acts, have been revealed. Yes, imagine Isaiah 
after what was a very difficult round of ministry. I've been through some difficult times in ministry. But if you continue reading in Isaiah chapter 6, God tells Isaiah that, oh, by the way, your ministry will be quite fruitless on the front end. You won't see a lot of people receiving your words. They're actually going to reject everything you say. I haven't tasted of that bitter of a brew. But Isaiah, standing on the promises of God, is here probably singing this with God's people, standing with all the people of God, singing this as trumpets and plagues and bowls are poured out on the earth. Isaiah, who is alive today, has seen the beginning and the end of his message and his ministry. And he knows what a holy God can do. He knows that a holy God hears our cries, touches our lips, forgives sin. Now, many of us have faced disaster and death and unemployment and grief over the last couple of years, maybe the last couple of weeks. And Isaiah speaks to us a precious word from God's very throne room that a holy God welcomes you, your children, your neighbors, into his presence. And that his message for you is one of forgiveness and healing. His will is to draw us into his circle of holiness and to transform us by uniting us to himself through his Son, by sharing his own righteousness with us, so that he can be glorified and we can be his mouthpieces to the nations and the neighborhoods of Richmond. Let us pray. Holy God, through the power of your Spirit, Send your angel out to your people today. Assure each soul that is here of your rich offering of Christ that is fully, fully everything that we need to recover from the difficulties, the sadness, and the grief that can come with life in this world. And grant, Holy Father, that as we take these elements today of bread and wine to our lips, that we will receive them as from an angel of God, placing them on our lips and whispering to all who have faith in Him that your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And amen.